May we turn in the Bible to Psalm 124. I know it's the custom of many of us to mark up our Bibles and put little dates in them, but I've just written in mine Psalm 124 Anniversary Sermon, October 30th, 1966. And this psalm is an appropriate one for an occasion like this. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, now may Israel say. And then the psalm closes, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the psalmist describes here a condition very similar to the one that we've had and discusses the difficulties and problems which he'd had to face. Now the conclusion of his entire experience is that if the Lord hadn't have been on his side, he wouldn't have anything to say. If it weren't for the Lord, he wouldn't be here. And in all of his troubles, he's had so many of them, that if the Lord hadn't have been with him, he just wouldn't be talking now. He wouldn't be even discussing these matters. If the Lord, if the Lord had not been on our side, how may Israel say we wouldn't have anything to talk about? We wouldn't have anything to say. We just wouldn't be here to testify. And beloved, if the Lord hadn't been on our side, we wouldn't be here today either. And this indeed is a great occasion, an anniversary for us as a people. And we thank God that he's been with us in our pilgrimage and our journeys. And we're on the march and we're still going and thank God he's still with us. And those of you who've been a part of this church these many years and those of you who've joined us in recent years and then even in recent months, we want all of us to be united in an understanding of what God has done for us. The Lord has delivered us. And he's delivered us in a far greater way than we appreciate or understand. And he's done far greater things for us than you and I can even begin to comprehend at this point in the appreciation of our journey. But notice how this psalm develops. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when man rose up against us, the psalmist is saying that his troubles and his difficulties have come because of men who have been against them and have opposed them and have sought to deal with them. Beloved, this is a beautiful church building, one of the most beautiful in the land. But we gave up a church building. We had a church building. It too was a beautiful Gothic structure that the people of this church built and put their money into it. And we thought it belonged to us. And it did belong to us until it was taken away from us. And we thought that we would be able to worship and to continue our testimony in accordance with our beliefs and our sound doctrine. And then we found that men came at us and they carried us off to court and they made claims and 
We learned to our amazement that the judge said that the property belonged to the group, a little handful, that stayed with the denomination's visible physical structure. And that those of us who claim to be staying with the denomination's doctrine and its concept of faith, that we would have to forsake our properties and let the material things be in the hands of those who had the ecclesiastical machinery. Then it was that we stepped out. Then it was that we went on alone and we said, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us, as we sang that last farewell hymn. And we walked down here the next Lord's Day to find a tent on a vacant lot. And we had nothing but little paper communion cups in our hands, but we had the faith in our hearts and we had the Bible to preach. And it has been this Bible and this faith which has given to us what we now have today and what we're going to be able to hand down to our grandchildren in the generation that follows. And it's the Lord who's been on our side. You know, sometimes people get up and say, well, I, I don't think so much about the Lord being on our side, but we being on the Lord's side. And somebody tries to make a distinction between being on the Lord's side and the Lord being on our side. Well, I don't think the Bible makes that distinction. The Lord's people, when they stand for the things that the Bible tells us we should stand for, the Lord stands with us. And we want the Lord to stand with us. That's what we're working for. We want his blessing on our church. We want his favor upon our homes. We want his faith to come into the hearts of those about us. And we're concerned that where we stand, God will stand with us. And God will undertake for us. And I don't hesitate to say the Lord's on my side. And I'm in a place where the Lord can help us and we can trust him. And the Lord will undertake for us as we move along through the years that he has assigned to us in this journey. But notice as you move on down verse 3. Then they had swallowed us up quickly when their wrath was kindled against us. The psalmist says this crowd that wanted to dispose of us. Do you know, beloved, back in those days when we were in the battle inside the Presbyterian Church and Dr. J. Gresham H. and the great scholar from Princeton was leading this matter with his great scholarly defense of the faith. These men were in a hurry to throw him out of the church. They were in a hurry to see that this little remnant just petered out. And they thought that was exactly what would happen to this little remnant. And it is interesting when you look back through the history of the church. Beloved, you and I today, with what we believe and the things we stand for, ought to be those who possess the great properties and the resources of the United Presbyterian Church. They were taken into the hands of liberals and the indifferentists as we went down through that struggle year after year. And in the time of 1923, when the Auburn Affirmation was an issue, if the leaders of the church in that day had stood for the purity of the doctrines like we stand today, the liberals would have had to go out and start with nothing, and we would have been in possession of the heritage and the properties of the church. 
1929 when the great battle was raging here in Princeton over the control of Princeton Theological Seminary, still there was a great segment of the church that realized what was happening. And then we moved to the great independent board battles of 1933, 34, and 36, and the uh, support of the uh, resistance movement grew a little, uh, uh, a little smaller. And every time you went up to do battle with these great issues, the modernist, uh, indifferentist coalition became stronger, and their numbers increased. And as the years passed by, and finally they came down to the end, they said, we can slough off this little crowd, and when they're gone, we'll have it all, and then we'll do what we please with it. And that's exactly what they thought. And in God's good and blessed providence, we were appointed by him to have a place in preserving our faith. Preserving it without material attachments. Preserving it without any earthly considerations. Preserving it in the blue of heaven with nothing but just faith in our hearts which told us that we were right and that God was on our side. And from that day when we moved out with nothing but paper cups and sawdust under our feet and a tent over our heads, we've seen God on our side moving and moving and developing and unfolding until today there is a great movement throughout this world and we call it a reformation movement of the 20th century and we've been pleased in the span of our earthly years to see this unfold in its purity and in its testimony and now the issues are drawn on a world level on a stage that involves the whole Christian community and and this church and all that you and I represent, thank God, are still standing where we stood when we had nothing. And it's that stand and that faith that the psalmist is talking about here when he said, They would have swallowed me up quick. They were in their wrath that was kindled against us. And then he turns to use a beautiful figure of the waters. It's the waters of the Red Sea. It's the waters of a mighty sea that would overflow. And we read in verse 4, Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The streams had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our souls. And at this point, the the psalmist stops. You come to a great transition in this psalm. He said, they were like a tide. They were like waters. They rolled and they just simply were going to engulf us. And then verse 6, he says, blessed be the Lord, who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. My, look at the language he uses here, wrath. Proud waters, teeth. You know, this Bible is hate literature. That's what this Bible is. This is hate literature. It's got bad words in it. Teeth, wrath, language of that kind. It's all in the words. Hate literature. And beloved, that's the reason the thrust today on the part of all these liberals. In the ecclesiastical world, the political world, in every world you look at, that's the reason the thrust is against this Bible, because it draws the lines between good and evil, between righteousness and wickedness, between Christ and the devil. 
is in this book. And God wants that line to be in your heart so that you will live holy and righteously before him. And then he says, our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare. They thought they had the snare closed and the bird flew away. The snare is broken and we've gotten away. We're free. And then finally he cries out as he started, Our help is in the name of the Lord. And if these gentlemen think they've got power, let them talk about their power. Let them talk about their wealth. Let them talk about their political advantages. Let them talk all they want to about these things. But our God made the heavens and he made the earth. And you can't find anybody any bigger than that to help you. Our God created all things. And this is what the psalmist is saying. Beloved, this week there came into my hands the official Sunday school publication of the church we left. It's Crossroads. October, November, December 1966. And I began to read it and I said, Lord, you certainly did get us out of that snare. You certainly have delivered us. And I thought maybe you people would be interested in seeing some of the things that they're now teaching in the church that we long since left behind. Here is the lesson. The creation and the fall. Biblical studies is what they call it. Biblical studies. And this particular section deals with the early chapters of Genesis. And of course they don't take very long time to tell us that all these early chapters of Genesis are just myths. But listen to this one, quote, We have to give up childish ideas about heaven as a place. Somewhere out there above the clouds, beyond the twinkling stars, and the great blue expanse of the sky. Now they're telling the Presbyterians they're going to have to give up the ideas that heaven is a place. Beloved, would you kindly tell me where Jesus went to when he ascended? Where did he go? Where is this Jesus now? It's some place. Earth is a place. He was on it. He lived here. He died here. He arose from the dead. And then he said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. If it were not so, I would have told you. If there were not a place like this, I would have told you there was no place like this. But I want you to be where I am, that where I am there ye may be also, and whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we don't know about that place. We don't know whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, I am the way. Way where? To this place. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
You know, when I read this and looked it over, I wonder where the Presbyterians put their dead now. They don't send them to heaven anymore. <laughs> I wonder what these Presbyterians do with their dead. What happens to them when they leave here? Where do they go? Oh, beloved, this is utterly fantastic that the Presbyterians in their Sunday school publication would tell the people that we must give up the childish ideas about heaven as a place. I'm certainly glad we're not mixed up with them anymore because I know where I'm going. And you know where you're going. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is a heaven where our Savior is. And there's a throne where the redeemed are. And there's a place prepared for those of us who've been washed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They can have their church. They can have their hierarchy. They can have all the material possessions of this old world. But give me Jesus and give me heaven where he is. Well, this is very interesting to read all this. Read over a little further here and listen to this one. They're talking now about the Genesis account of creation. Of course, it's all a myth. Quote, Let us make man. That's a quotation from Genesis. Let us make man our own image. Let us make man cannot very well be interpreted as an allusion to the Trinity. Of course, that's what we always thought it was. First of all, such a pluralistic understanding of the three-in-one God would lead to three gods, not to the triune God. Now, beloved, that is exactly the line that Bishop Pike has been preaching. That's his line exactly. And apparently they must have gotten their inspiration from Bishop Pike for this Sunday school lesson. Let me read this to you again. Let us make man cannot very well be interpreted as an allusion to the Trinity. First of all, such a pluralistic understanding of the three-in-one God would lead to three gods, not to the triune God. Secondly, this would mean introducing into the writing under consideration doctrines that are utterly alien to it. Beloved, the only reason we believe there is a trinity is that the Bible teaches it. And from the beginning of the revelation to the end of the revelation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are active in all the work of God. And it is a teaching of the Bible, the Old of the New Testament, that the Son was active in creation. That the Spirit of God was active in creation. And that God the Father was active in creation. And we've always believed that when God said, let us make man in our own image, the Trinity was speaking and the Trinity was moving to bring into being a creature such as man in God's image. I've always believed it. They have a little explanation of this word us. I was 
since they threw out the Trinity, I wondered what they were going to give us in the place of this Trinity. And you know what they say here? They say here that we're using imagery that belongs to the time of the kings and that each king had his court with his attendants about him and that God here is a king and when he says us, he's speaking of the attendants of his court who are assisting him in this work. That's it. Now, beloved, they go on with this whole Bible. And let me read you this marvelously inspired account of the Bible. Let me read it to you. This is Presbyterian doctrine. As biblical scholars have studied the style characteristic vocabulary and thought of the different biblical writings. They have tried to find explanations for the striking similarities in different books and the dissimilarities between sections in some other books. They thus produced certain theories that are now regarded reliable by the overwhelming majority of biblical scholars. Such a theory is the view now generally accepted that the book of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings were originally a single historical work. Though it embraces a lot of older material, was written shortly after 622 B.C. in Jerusalem. Well, now, beloved, Deuteronomy is supposed to have been written by, uh, by Moses, and Moses was supposed to have lived about 1,500 years before Christ. And now they've taken Deuteronomy and mixed it up with these other books and said we didn't get it until 622 B.C. in Jerusalem. Also, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah are considered to have been a single work. On the other hand, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which according to Jewish traditions are works of Moses are now considered to have been written and woven together from four independent writings about 400 B.C. The first of these four documents is called J. The second is called E, the Ephraimite work, which about 850 to 800 B.C., which was about... And then they're coming down, the third is D, and the fourth is is P, and P is the priestly writing. And then, beloved, they go through here and they tell you that the priestly writing was finally put into existence about 400 B.C. And then they proceed to tell you that these references in the early part of the first chapter of Genesis came from the priestly line which means that you didn't get the writings of the first chapter of Genesis until about 400 B.C. Frankly, I wouldn't want to go to Sunday school and study this because you'd get so mixed up chasing J, E, and P, and D around that you wouldn't know whether this was P or this is J or this was E or what you were going to get. 
Here it is, beloved. And this is what God has delivered us out of. And let us thank God that when our children come to Sunday school, we teach them that the Bible is the very thing it represents itself to be, the Word of God. And we teach them that when Jesus said, Had ye believed Moses, ye would believe me, because he wrote of me. And if ye believe not his writings, neither will ye believe my words. And when you take the Sunday School publication for October, November, December 1966, tear the scriptures all to pieces and say it's Jewish tradition that Moses wrote these early books. No, beloved, it is the authority of Jesus Christ that Moses wrote these early books. And had you believed Moses, ye would believe me because he wrote of me. You dear people here today on this great anniversary occasion ought to just thank the living God from the bottom of your souls that you're not sitting under a ministry where you're getting this kind of hodgepodge offered to you in the name of biblical scholarship. Instead, you're having preached to you the word of God and faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we believe in a heaven and we believe in a hell. And when you get through saying that heaven isn't a place, the next thing to say is that hell isn't a place. And when you get through eliminating heaven and eliminate hell, you've got a beautiful broad humanism that takes care of everybody. And your program of the church changes then into some kind of a social ministry and that's all you've got. Beloved, they thought they set us on the sideline somewhere so they could carry on their program. But they've carried on their program, but God has been on my side. He's been on our side. And this testimony is being lifted up now to such a point that everywhere they turn, they're being plagued. They're being, they're being questioned. And may I say to you, as I stand in this pulpit this morning, there's only one reason why God is put in our hands all these radio stations across this nation on which we can speak every day. These gentlemen forgot about this. They didn't understand that anything like this could happen. There's only one reason God Almighty has promised in His Word that no matter what happens on the face of this earth, He will deliver those who trust in Him and He'll use their testimony in His name and for His glory and He'll do it. And He takes the weak thing and He confounds the mighty. He takes the foolish things and He uses it to confound the wise. Here's the great Methodist Church, November. Here's our Together publication. Wither Methodism in an ecumenical age. There's a big problem. Let me read it to you. Christian unity, which one spokesman called the life and death question of the church today, dominated last summer's World Methodist Meeting in London. Ecumenical considerations seem to hang like a typical London umbrella on the arm of every major address, debate, and cloakroom comment. 
The Council's most significant act probably was the establishment of two now special commissions, one to deal with ecumenical affairs, the other to consider specific international and social questions of the World Council of Churches. The Council attempted to answer criticisms by some of its members that it was insufficiently interested in Christian unity. It authorized establishment of a Methodist body to give special attention to conversations with the Roman Catholic Church. One leader observed that the conference seemed bolder and more progressive than its parent body. The World Methodist Council, for example, has has only drafted an official message to be rubber-stamped by the larger conferences. This time, however, the conference vigorously debated the message and sent it back for stronger positions on such topics as civil rights, Vietnam, and Red China. Beloved, when heaven isn't a place and you don't worry about keeping sinners out of hell, you can turn to the great program of changing society and developing this great political state which has now become the dream of these men for some kind of a kingdom of God. The paper from Canada that just came in from the United Church of Canada has a big feature story here on Eon Paisley. May I read you this one? Here's the Presbyterian, here's the Methodist, here's the Canadian struggle. This one on Paisley is entitled The Irish Issue in a Land of Protestant-Catholic Tensions. Ireland as a whole suffers from too vivid an historical memory. And then we have the usual line that Life and Time magazine gave us on this story. And we come on down. While Paisley is in prison, for the time being, there has been peace in Belfast. In this changing atmosphere, Northern Ireland has had for the last three years a prime minister to epitomize the new outlook. Captain... The Right Reverend Honorable Terence O'Neill, whose own and whose family loyalties to the British connections cannot be doubted, seeks to develop the new spirit and specifically asks that sincere Christians help to this end. Then it goes ahead and dear Mr. Paisley and his associate have turned out to be religious and political extremists. All this change has provoked bitter reaction from religious and political extremists. Beloved, we've gotten to the day where it's wrong to appreciate your history. If you have too glowing a memory of your history, you're in problems of difficulty. And we've gotten to a day now when those who stand where the word of God has always stood and held the people, they become the religious and political extremists. And here it is. There's Canada. There's the United States. There's Ireland. And in the midst of all of this, in 1966, we can say with the psalmist, had not the Lord been on our side, had not the Lord been on our side, I wouldn't have had anything to say. But the Lord has been on our side. And the Lord has cared for us and led us and protected us and kept us on the straight and narrow course that his word set out for us. And now that the Lord...
Lord is on our side. We can arise and say, Blessed be the Lord our God. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. This is 1966. It was 30 years ago when the little break came and we didn't see, we didn't understand, we didn't comprehend what's ahead of us. But beloved, there's one thing that is ahead of us. He that is faithful unto death, I will give a crown of life. And let the goods and the kindred go. Let this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for Thy precious word. And we thank Thee that heaven is a place. And that our Savior ascended up into that place. And He's coming again. And Lord, we know that these things are taking place all about us. And may our people be faithful and steadfast, and may we be witnesses. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou hast kept thy servant here these many years. Oh, we thank thee for all that thou hast done for us. And now, Lord, as we go to our homes, wilt thou enable us to wait upon the Lord, to rejoice in the doctrine, the sound doctrine, and to believe that what thou hast promised thou art able to perform and that thou art the God of our fathers. For Christ's sake, amen. Beloved, I do want to say to you as we close the service how thankful your pastor is that I still stand in this pulpit. I just thank God for it. This week we have the 25th anniversary of the American Council. We've had two meetings a year for 25 years. We've had 49 meetings of the American Council in this country. And I've attended every one of them. Haven't missed a one. And I am just thankful to God today on this anniversary occasion that the Lord has preserved us and protected us and given us a blessed opportunity to preach this gospel and to be a blessing to your soul. Now let us close by singing this great hymn of the Reformation, which we indeed delight to sing. A mighty fortress is our God, 122.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.